fits. We open your hymn note, page 542. Read the first stanza of the poem you find there. The virgins to make much of time? Yes. That's the one. Somewhat appropriate, isn't it? <laughs> Gather ye rosebuds while ye may. Old time is still a-flying. And this same flower that smiles today, tomorrow will be dying. Thank you, Mr. Pitts. Gather ye rosebuds while ye may. The Latin term for that sentiment is carpe diem. Now, who knows what that means? Carpe diem. That's cease the day. Very good, Mr. Meeks. Meeks. Another unusual name. Seize the day. Gather ye rosebuds while ye may. Why does the writer use these lines? Because he's in a hurry. No. Ding. Thank you for playing anyway. Because we are food for worms, lads. Because believe it or not, each and every one of us in this room is one day going to stop breathing, turn cold, and die. I'd like you to step forward over here and peruse some of the faces from the past. You've walked past them many times. I don't think you've really looked at them. They're not that different from you, are they? Same haircuts, full of hormones, just like you. Invincible, just like you feel. The world is their oyster. They believe they're destined for great things, just like many of you. Their eyes are full of hope, just like you. Did they wait till it was too late to make from their lives even one iota of what they were capable? Because you see, gentlemen, these boys are now fertilizing daffodils. But if you listen real close, you can hear them whisper their legacy to you. Go on, lean in. Listen. You hear it? Carpe diem, seize the day. You've heard it before. And that's what we've been talking about the past couple of Tuesdays together, seizing the day. And, in fact, I think Alfred Nobel understood the impact of carpe diem. Um, Nobel was a Swedish physicist and um, um, chemist who became world-renowned for inventing something. Anybody know what he invented? Dynamite, yeah. And uh, he was an idealist, and he had hopes that his invention of dynamite would be a great good that he would give the world that would help the world significantly. But what one man can invent, another man can pervert. And instead, dynamite became the greatest weapon of the war, of the weapon of war the world had ever seen. And, and so... Um, his dynamite was used for terrible purposes. Well, a little later on in Alfred Nobel's life, his brother died, and a French newspaper erroneously printed Alfred Nobel's obituary, thinking Alfred Nobel had died. And so that morning when Nobel woke up, he pulled, he pulled open the paper, and he read his own obituary. Can you imagine that? And in it, it said that Alfred Nobel would be known for one thing, his invention of dynamite. He would be called the merchant of death. Well, that just devastated Alfred Nobel. I mean, with all his idealistic dreams and hopes that what he would give the world would be something good and be used for good, he realized he, his destiny was to go down in history as leaving a legacy of death. 
And that had such an impact on Alfred Nobel that from that point forward, he decided that he would dedicate his entire life and use his entire fortune to set up the Nobel Prizes, of which the cornerstone is the Peace Prize, all developed to attempt to correct that misperception of what he was like. See, Alfred Nobel had the privilege that most of us will never have, and that is he read his own obituary. From the middle of life, he had the opportunity to view it from the end. He stood on what we called last week sacred ground, and as a result, he was able to see clearly, and he made a mid-course correction in the present, that would move people to have a different perception about his life. In last week, remember, uh, we talked about it would be extremely wise to imagine how you would finish life, to, to go all the way to the end of life, that place called sacred ground, and think, where do you want to be when life ends? I, I mean, how you're going to end up. Envisioning the end is critical for a man, without a vision of, a, of the end of your life, then no man knows how to successfully navigate the present, the now. Instead, what he ends up doing without a vision for the end, spend most of his life just wandering through life, uh, not headed in any definitive direction, rather than moving strategically to an appointed place and an appointed time that every one of us will face. Now, in two weeks, I'm going to give you what I think is going to be a simple but a profound tool that will help you focus strategically your life by looking at the end. It will help you move out, um, out and look and evaluate where you're headed by painting a picture of what the end could look like. So you're asking the question, so how am I doing? Am I heading the right direction? Am I going where I want to go? Will I finish my life in a way, in such a way that I look back on it and say, well, that was a life well lived. And that's going to come in two weeks. It's a simple little tool I'm going to give you that's going to help you do that. But this morning, what I want to do is I thought it would be good to begin with four reflections on last week. Remember last week we learned that cultivating the sacred ground of the mind is one of the most important things a man can do. Can do. Remember that that sacred ground is the spot in your imagination that sees how you want to finish. And because you can envision it, it's constantly pulling you that direction. Now for most men, that sacred that spot, that sacred ground is empty, it's void, it has no definition, no clarity. But the sacred ground of the mind is a place that we go to see how we finish our lives. And if you're able to do that, then it can bring balance, it can bring perspective and encouragement to your life uh, to keep you doing what you're doing so you can finish the way you envisioned your life finishing. That's the sacred ground. And cultivating that sacred ground is one of the most important things a man can do because with it, he can see life at the end, which should benefit him now. Every man needs to visualize that sacred ground. The Apostle Paul lived that way. Listen to what he said. He said, I run not without uncertainty. I fight not as one who beats the air. Do you guys remember the Three Stooges? Some of you guys are old enough to remember them. You remember Curly? When Curly would get upset, when he'd get in a fight, remember what he'd do? Woo! He thought it was funny. I mean, because he wasn't hitting anything. He was just flailing. He was beating the air. Now, you got to remember that Curly was a stooge. But there are a lot of guys who live life just that way. They're going through life. They're hitting it hard. That, that is the air in front of them without a clue where they're going to end up. They, they live life like that very first electronic game. Remember Pac-Man, waka, 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 just biting the next thing in life, biting the next feeling, going after the next reaction to life with no clear sense 
of where they're going of any kind of destiny in their life. Now, you remember last week we said sacred ground has really two perspectives. The first sacred ground looks from the end. It looks back from the end. And it asks questions like these. Did I do what I really wanted to do with my life? Did I invest my life in the right places? And did I experience the four adventures that God has for me? And it stands at the end of life and looks back and it becomes this north star, this reference point. It stands at the end and it helps you evaluate where you are today, Tuesday, November 11th. And it asks, am I moving in a way that my life ends with what I have envisioned? Sacred ground would mean visualizing in your mind what people would say as they go by your coffin. I mean, would they look at you and go, well, he lived life well. What would they say about you? What kind of things would come to their mind? So at the end of life, you can look back and think about your kids. Did you raise them well? Did you launch them well? Sacred ground allows you to evaluate that. You can say, yeah, I raised them well. I prepared them well for this, this life. I launched them. I, I taught them how to, how to handle finances and how to ha- handle their passions. And, and I taught them how to uh, navigate relationships in life. Yeah, I, I handle life well. That's what sacred ground does. Or maybe uh, you can envision your kids passing by your casket. And what would they say to you? Well, they say, hey, Dad, thanks. Thanks for preparing me. You prepared me well for life. You've launched me. I've, I have, I'm way far ahead that, that, than most of my friends in life because of your investment in my life. And see, if you can envision your kids saying that, then you can move back to the present and look at your son who's out of control, and you don't throw in the towel. You say, no, I'm going to dig in deeper. I'm not giving up. I'm going to see this through to the end because this is what I want my end to look like. Or do you look at the end of your life, and you can picture a bunch of fun man-sized adventures? Do you see that having been accomplished? And then you take that back to the present and you ask the quest, yourself the question, am I having fun yet? Have I started any of these adventures? That's the power of the sacred ground. Or you look at the end of your life and uh, you picture yourself, do you picture yourself fighting a cause bigger than yourself in that noble cause adventure? And then you come back to the present and you ask yourself, am I making progress in fighting that direction? Do I have a noble cause? What's the next step in finding that cause, that adventure? Now, that's what I mean about looking back over life. The more you see that sacred ground of your death, the more you can come back to today and live because sacred ground has a backwards look to it. But sacred ground also has a forward look to it. It looks forward from this life's end. And as it looks forward, it asks these kind of questions. Am I confident in my relationship with God? Am I expecting a reward, commendation, and new adventures in a life that's ahead of me, the life to come? Now, I I, I realize that's kind of metaphysical stuff, but it's essential to stand on that sacred ground for the future of every successful man and ask those kind of questions. Now, you remember, secondly, we also learned that the stronger the connection and fit between my design and my present pursuits and my end, the more meaningful and satisfying a man's life will be. There has to be a connection between all three of those. Remember the wiring of the adventurer? Remember his circuitry? There were three things. In the past, there's your design that you were born with. Then we move to the present. That's your present pursuits. And then to move to the future, that's to decide how you're going to finish. And the more connected my today is with my end, the more satisfaction and energy you will bring into your life on a continual basis. And then we said that 
the adventurer has a sacred oath. you remember the sacred oath? I will fervently live my life according to my design with the end in mind. Any man who does that will live a life filled with meaning and satisfaction. I will fervently live my life, that's the present, according to my design, that's taking in the past, how you were gifted, with the end in mind, that's taking in account the future. And, and, and then, remember that you got to remember that we saw life as we know it turns on two worldviews. Two worldviews. Only two. I mean, life fools us into thinking that there are multiple options out there and we get confused, but there are really only two basic worldviews. Either there is more after this life, and I need to live with that expectation in mind, or there's nothing more. That's the only two worldviews. And if there's nothing, then all I am is a cosmic accident. That's it, period. Those are the only two worldviews. There is more after this life, and there is nothing more. But remember, we said those two worldviews uh, give us four possible outcomes. And the first outcome, well, we've already seen, is that when death comes, well, it's over. It's just over. There's nothing after it. You become worm food. But when Gallup asked Americans, do you believe in a literal heaven, 81% of Americans said that uh, when it's over, they didn't believe it was over. They believed that there was an afterlife, 81%. Only 19% of Americans believe that when it's over, it's really over. There's nothing after that. So that's one possibility, but there's a second outcome. It says that when life ends on this earth, it's not over, and whatever is next, I will be just fine for. Everyone's going to be just fine. That's the blind optimist view. So it doesn't matter really what's going on right now, how you live, what virtues or lack of virtues you live by. When you die, there's going to be just big band and a party is going to be thrown for you in the sky. That's what that view holds. But when the question was asked by Gallup, will all people experience the same outcome after death regardless of their belief, only 44% said yes. 56% said no. So I, those 56% are wondering if they're going to be okay after they die. But there's a third possible outcome. Remember that? It says that when life ends on this earth, it's not over. And I'm good enough for what's next. In other words, I look at my life, my deeds, how I've conducted my life, and I feel like whatever's coming, I'm, I'm good for it. But Gallup asked this, can a person be good enough to gain a place in heaven? Well, 55% said, yeah, they thought you could. But 45% said, no, you can't. So that creates some tension. And then the final outcome says, when life ends on this earth, it's not over and I'm going to need help for what's next. And Gallup asked, will all people be evaluated by God, by God at death? Sent. You know, this thing keeps cutting in and out. Do you have any idea why? Is it something up here? Well, 85% of people, of Americans, said we expect some kind of judgment at some time in the future. Only 15% said, no, no, nothing like that will come. And, that, and I tell you that because that 85%, that's got to be a large number of probably thinking, you know, when I die, I need some kind of help. So there are four possible outcomes that flow out of two metaphysical worldviews, and we concluded that if there is more to life, then we ought to do whatever we can in order to understand what that's going to be like because that's the sacred ground we've got to view life from. So that does bring up a question. Now that question is, so what is next? 
Do you know that was the focus of an ABC special a few years ago with Barbara Walters? Watch this video. Return the idea of dying and going to heaven into an anthem for a generation. From unforgettable lyrics to memorable lines. If you don't change who you are, then you won't go to heaven. Many of us draw our most vivid impressions of heaven not by sitting in front of the pulpit. God, I gotta ask you something. What's the meaning of life? But by sitting in front of television and movie screens. Bruce, I'm God. Bingo! Yahtzee! The film industry has sort of become our collective imaginations. The messenger has arrived. We turn out movies day after day after day that are concerned with heaven, how to get there, what it's going to look like. It's a way to discuss what's important in life. Why do you want to save me? That's what I was sent down for. I'm your guardian angel. In the classic film, It's a Wonderful Life, Jimmy Stewart's character is pushed to the brink of suicide by financial ruin. But a lifetime of helping others ultimately saves him. And Clarence, his guardian angel, is rewarded too and wings his way back to heaven. Judgment Day was never like this in the Bible. In the movie, Defending Your Life, the road to heaven passes through familiar territory. This is your hotel? A kind of Miami beach complete with fancy hotels and top-notch restaurants. You like pasta? Very much. I'm going to bring you three pounds of it. And you can eat all you want and never gain an ounce. You like a pie? I love pie. I'm going to bring you nine pies to take with you. But how does one get to this ideal place? Is that heaven? Is it really going to be like that? All the pies you can eat, all the pasta you can eat, and you don't gain weight? You hope so. Well, this morning, what I want to do is present one perspective. Now, it's the one I know best. It's the Christian perspective. And I want to do that by probing what the Bible says is ahead of us about life and death. You know, the Bible is the best-selling book in all of history, bar none. So I want to give you three statements that I think will clarify for you what's next so you can stand confidently on that sacred ground as you look back. Letter A, the Bible says death offers the possibility of great gain. Now, that's a consistent theme throughout the entire Bible, and that great, great gain is usually summarized in one single word, and that's heaven or paradise or eternal life. Uh, In fact, Dr. Peter Kreft, professor of philosophy at Boston College, says this about heaven. Next to the idea of God, the idea of heaven is the greatest idea that has ever entered the heart of man, woman, or child. Now, that's a powerful statement that it's the greatest idea next to the idea of God that has ever entered uh, the mind of human beings. Now, if that's true then why doesn't it carry more weight in our present lives? Well, I want to give you three reasons why I think it doesn't. Because it really doesn't carry much weight in our present lives. It doesn't seem to impact the way we live today. And the first reason is the only heaven most men know about is childish and boring. I mean, do you really want to sit on a cloud and play on harp? Is that what you dream about doing? Do you really want to sing in a celestial choir for 10,000 years? I mean, even if you like music for 10,000 years, and what about for those of us who can't carry a tune in a tin can? I mean, that sounds like some kind of sentence. It's repulsive. I mean, do you really think you're going to look good in white robes? I mean, are you looking forward to that? Is that going to be thrilling to you? I mean, the picture most people have painted of heaven has really nothing to do with heaven. And um, I want you to know for people who go to church, 
Those descriptions of white robes and singing in choirs, that's as deep as it goes for most of them. It has no more color on it than that and no more enticement. There's nothing wooing people forward. And even for pastors, heaven is, well, it's wings, clouds, golden streets. That's not compelling to a man. There must be something else there we can look forward to. So we mostly have a childish and boring view of heaven. Secondly, because we don't see heaven as a compelling place, we become consumed with trying to build a heaven for ourselves here on this earth. I mean, that's kind of the default mechanism. But do you remember what C.S. Lewis said last week? He said, if I find in myself a desire that no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world, a different place. And we mistakenly believe this world is supposed to bring ultimate happiness, but, but I'm here to tell you it won't. It will never satisfy completely. Now, you will never be able to wring enough life out of this life to completely satisfy you. Now, I know you, you don't have anybody telling you that, but I want to be at least one man who's honest enough to stand before you and say this life will never completely satisfy. In fact, this life was created by God to be an appetizer. An appetizer essentially sets the stage for what comes next, the main meal. So this life is an appetizer. And if this life is fun, imagine what the main meal is going to be like. If this life is an adventure, imagine the adventure you'll have at the main meal. And then thirdly, the reason we don't see heaven as a compelling place to be is we've rarely been offered a biblical vision of heaven that's compelling and motivating. The most compelling vision men have of heaven here in the United States is a baseball diamond in a cornfield in Iowa. And for some men, that's, that's a little bit exciting. Maybe it's compelling for some guys. But when was the last time you heard anyone paint a picture of eternity that you said, man, I can't wait to get there, that was motivating, that had color all over it, that brought life to you? Now, sadly, in a report on heaven in Time magazine, they made this profound observation. In today's church, heaven is preserved like a bug in amber. We can't look at we, we can look at it, but it's atrophied, it's dead, it's lifeless. So that really begs the question: What is in store for us in the future? What is heaven really like? Well, I want to give you six quick descriptions that's straight out of the Scripture, and I want to warn you, these descriptions are going to stretch you and make some of you feel uncomfortable. Some of them are going to feel a little fanciful, but it's an honest look at what the Bible says heaven's going to be like. The first, heaven will be a place of resolution, namely to this life's loose ends, a place of resolution. To enter heaven, the Bible says, you will move from partial to full understanding. In other words, all your questions, your speculations about life will have some kind of resolution in heaven. Will have resolution after you die. I love what C.S. Lewis said about that. He said the first thought that that will enter our minds when we enter heaven is this. Oh, of course. Suddenly, everything makes sense. You understand the why behind the what. In fact, the Apostle Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 13. He, he says, now. Now, that's today. So it, it really starts today. Right now, I know in part. But then I shall, and then is, that's the future, that's heaven. Then I shall know just as I am known. In other words, in the way God fully understands me, I'll begin to fully understand. And I'll see life as it really is. I'll have complete understanding. But secondly, heaven, the Bible says, will be a place that you move from erratic to perfect justice. From erratic to perfect justice. I mean, 
Over the span of our lives, you will see a thousand different injustices going on around you. In fact, some of you carry those injustices right now that have happened to you. I mean, you'll see lives that are cut short tragically and you've got no answer for it. Uh, you'll see bad, ugly, horrible things happen to good people, and you'll scratch your head. And then you'll see great things happen to people that don't deserve it, and that seems to be unjust. And all those injustices that you'll experience through life, they cause uh, choices in people, and many people choose to rail against God for all the injustices of the world. But what I want you to know is the Scripture says... Heaven stands as a promise from God where all of those injustices will be dealt with. Every one of them. And dealt with in a way that you probably have never imagined down to the most personal things that you've even thought. But they will be dealt with. And here's what Ecclesiastes says in the Old Testament. For God will bring every, that's the key word, every, He will bring every work into judgment, including everything, whether good or evil. But heaven, thirdly, will also be a place where you move from foolish faith to vindication. To some, the Christian faith is just foolish. It's foolish because they see no corollary between this present faith and then what's next. But I want you to listen to the way Paul views it. 1 Corinthians 15 says, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. In other words, if you can't see a corollary between this life and the next life, that people ought to feel sorry for us because we have lived our life on this earth in vain. You see, when you enter heaven, there's not going to be anybody there saying, Do you really believe that? Come on, you don't believe that. Everybody will say, I am so glad I believe that because you've moved from a faith that people thought was foolish to a vindication. Suddenly you see things as they really are. So heaven's a place where the loose ends are tied up. Everything's connected. And knowing that ought to give texture and bring rest to your present life. Now, secondly, heaven will be a place of what I called altered states. And this is amazing. The Bible says we're going to get new bodies, brand new bodies. You know, the older I get, the happier I am to hear that. Now, you've seen an old Ford Pinto going down the interstate, having you blowing smoke out the rear. That's what I feel like my body is like. The older I get, I mean, I'm blowing smoke. The upholstery's torn. I got dents in the hood. I'm, I'm only functioning on two of four cylinders. I mean, it, it's kind of frustrating. Uh, that's how life begins to feel in our bodies. So I'm looking forward to this Ferrari I'm going to get for a body sometime in the future. And I want you to know that's no exaggeration. Did you know the Scripture paints a picture of what life will be like in our new bodies? I mean, if Jesus' life after his resurrection in his new body is a prototype of the kind of bodies we will have, I mean, it's going to be amazing. I mean, you think about it. Uh, Jesus' body was recognized by everybody, so there's something about our new bodies being recognized. People will know who we are, but we will look different. Our bodies will be able to go in different dimensions time, space, dimension, and an eternal dimension. So there'll be things that this new body will do that our old bodies can't. And you saw that in the life of Jesus. I mean, remember when the guys were in the upper room after his ascension and they heard he the tomb was empty, but they had not seen him, and suddenly he just morphs into the room? And the Scripture makes a point that the doors were all shut. He comes through the wall or he just appears. We're not sure. But that was his new body. And you see it at his ascension. I mean, when he's standing there and suddenly he just levitates off the ground and then he floats up in the air and begins to fly away. There's not a guy in this room that hasn't dreamt of flying like a bird. Where does that come from? I think in the future our bodies will be able to do things like that. And they'll be able to do things that 
We can only imagine right now as if we're looking through a little pinhole in a paper to an eternity. But what we see is pretty intriguing. It's pretty exciting thinking about that. If there are desires on this earth that cannot be fulfilled on this earth, maybe they point to a life beyond this earth that we were never meant to just stay here. There will also be new relationships. We get new bodies. We get new relationships. So what will relationships be like in heaven? Well, you've got to think about it this way. If, if God is relational in nature, I mean, he is the one who created marriage, who created family, who created community. Uh, he's the one who gave us the second greatest commandment to love one another. I mean, can you imagine that he would have us in isolation in heaven? I don't think so. I mean, there's going to be community there, and we're going to have new relationships. And there's going to be a sense of intimacy that we can only imagine here on this earth and probably only uh, imagine it in the terms of thinking about a married couple and the intimacy they have. I mean, it's just uh, uh, beyond what we can even imagine. And we'll be unfettered by selfishness, by competition, by um, comparison. So we'll have phenomenal relationships in heaven. And we'll have a new home. I mean, in John 14, Jesus tells his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you. So when Jesus approaches you one day and says, here's your place, what do you picture in your mind? Do you picture a little cabin in the woods or do you picture a villa in the Riviera? Now, where, where I lived in Colorado, this was the view down my street. You can flip that up, that picture. I got to see this every single day. It took my breath away. I never get tired of looking at that. That's Pikes Peak. And that's from our street in Colorado. Now, if I got a view like that in a home on this earth, what will be the view in my heavenly home? I mean, will it be Saturn? Will it be a nebula somewhere? I, I don't know. Remember, this is just a small taste on this earth of what will happen in heaven. What will heaven be like? Uh, if we step back for just for a moment and think of the place that God provided the original couple on earth, Adam and Eve. He didn't give them a little house, a little place, a little cave to live in. He gave them the entire world to explore. He gave it all to them. And when you compare the beauty of this earth to um, barren planets out there, I mean, it's amazing by comparison that he, he gave us that. I'm simply suggesting that this earth, as we know it, is a hint. It's a hint to what we'll experience in heaven. It's an appetizer, an hors d'oeuvre. It's here just to prepare us for what's in our future. And then thirdly, heaven will be a place of personal rewards. Now here's what 1 Corinthians says. Now, if anyone builds a foundation, by the way, he's using figurative speech here. He's the foundation of your life he's talking about. If you build the foundation of your life with... Uh, gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, straw. Each man's work will become clear for the day will declare it. In other words, God's going to look back over every man's life and each man's life will become evident for what it was. And it will be shown for what it is based upon what you've built on. And then Paul continues he goes on to say, For the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each man's work. For what sort it is, if any man's work which he has built, built on endures, he will receive reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. So there will be a testing one day of the quality of our work. And if Doug's work uh, is burned up, I will suffer loss. If something remains, then I'll receive reward. And the point is that we will receive reward for what we've done here on this earth. So you can see that everything that you do today, every decision you make has ripples in eternity, doesn't it? It has ripples in heaven. 
It's not limited just to this life. Your work has impact on eternity, how you live today, the accountability you have with God and how you engage with Him. I mean, He knows everything you do. He knows who you are. He knows what you think. And He desires to reward you for because He's a generous God for the way you honor Him in this life. And if you do things that are worthy of of Him, then there is great reward for you. And things done in dishonor, well, they'll just be burned up and pass and pass away. But for the things you do well, be great reward. That's what it's saying. And then the scripture even goes further. I mean, it, it talks about a distinguished work that's given a crown. Now, you could think of a literal crown. I, I tend to think crowns are are figurative, but there will be a sense of honor for those men who lived a life of spiritual integrity for those who stand above this age and have the values that God wants us to have, who, who believe uh, that God is more and, and look for more and don't dumb down life for less. I mean, the Scripture uses this imagery of crown to give us a picture that there is reward that's coming your direction. And, and that ought to motivate us. In fact, in Second John 8... He pleads with us this way. He says, watch yourself. In other words, don't delude yourself in this life. I mean, it's easy to get off track to think nobody cares, nobody notices, I mean, remembers. But if I'm talking about what is next in life and there's reward for what I do now, then there is somewhere someone recording everything so it won't be lost. Why? So I can get full reward and you can get full reward. Heaven is going to be a place of rewards. And, that, and that's motivating. A fourth, heaven is going to be a place of new status and position for everyone. New status and position. Now listen to this. Not everyone will be the same in heaven. That's a childhood fantasy that everyone will be the same, that the scriptures emphatically deny. Heaven is not some huge celestial communism where everybody does the same and is the same and gets paid the same. If anything, this life is a training ground for that life. This life determines the status you'll have in that life in heaven. Again, there are ripples in this life that go into that next life. Now, Peter wrestled with that very thing. In fact, he approached Jesus and asked him about it. Listen to what he said. And then Peter said to him, that is Jesus, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? Can you feel Peter's angst? He's wrestling right where we are wrestling. What's going to be there for us? I mean, life gets hard and you see people taking shortcuts and you wonder, you know, is it really worth following the Scripture? Is it really worth, you know, dedicating my life to this? I mean, what good is that going to do? Well, notice how Jesus answers Peter. And Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, that's another word for heaven. It's a synonym for eternal life, for heaven. When the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory... You who have followed me will also sit on the twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake shall receive a hundredfold the eternal life. But many who are first will be last and last will be first. Do you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying by following me faithfully, you're going to have a position of rulership and ownership in heaven. By the way, that's what it means to inherit eternal life. It doesn't mean you get to go into heaven. That's not inheriting. Inheriting means you have ownership of it. You're going to have some kind of rulership and ownership in heaven. But he goes on to say, and everyone who has left 
houses and brothers or sisters or father or mother or children and lands. You could say in his left insurance companies and CPA firms and businesses and have given up lucrative careers to follow me, whatever he might be asking you to do, those will receive a hundredfold. And then he adds that last line, but many who are first will be last and last first. In other words, we're not going to be the same, and the positions will not be the same in heaven. They will be different. Now, now in January, I'm going to give you an assessment. It's uh, Servants by Design. You'll go online and take that assessment, and you'll get back your results. And some of you are going to look at those results, and you're going to say, you know, I don't know if I like my design. I, I don't know if I like what this is saying about me, how it's created. I mean, some of you look in the mirror today and you don't like the way you look. You don't like the way maybe you're aging. Uh, I mean, you would like to change that. Or you look at other people in your office and you wished you had their skills and their talents. But here's what I want you to know. Though you didn't choose the way you came into this life, you choose today how you're going to go into the next. That's the power of your life here on this earth. It's your choice. What place you'll have in heaven, what your status will be in heaven, the capacities that you'll be entrusted with is your choice by the decisions you make here today in this life. Now, that's amazing. And third, heaven will be a place of action and new adventures. Be a place of action and new adventures. Now, how do I know that? Well, Genesis 1 said God created the heavens and the earth. And then you get to the end of the Bible and you discover God's going to create a new heaven and a new earth for us to enjoy. And then you read the Bible and you find out that God is action-oriented. He's adventure-oriented. And and so, I mean, being brought up with this notion that heaven is this fixed monotony, this endless repetition, or even worse, this ongoing worship service, that's nowhere in Scripture. I mean, heaven is going to be a place of great adventures. It's going to be a place of great challenges where you get to explore this new heaven in this new earth. You have new responsibilities, and you'll connect with one another in amazing ways, and we'll all connect with the inventor of life in ways that we can't even fathom here on this earth. And it's going to be a very dynamic kind of relationship, and we'll be experiencing adventures that the greatest adventure on this earth is just a hint to what is to come. So that makes you anticipate heaven with, wow, I wonder what else is out there. And lastly, heaven will be a place of endless surprises. How do I know that? Well, 1 Corinthians 2.9 says this, but it is written... Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered the heart of man all that which God has prepared for those who love him. I love that phrase, all that. That describes something beyond what we have seen before or we can even imagine in our minds. All that God has for us. Uh, When I spent two weeks in the Himalayas with my uh, living among the calm Tibetans, we would go through, go over 16, 17,000 foot passes. And we'd go over those passes and then we'd come down in, into a, a, a valley at about 12,000 feet or maybe 10,000 feet. And we'd come around the bend and it would light up yellow. The canola fields were in bloom. And the whole valley was painted yellow, and it almost looked like the sun shining off the ground. And I remember looking at that and grabbing Josh and saying, did you see that? And then he would turn to me and say, did you see that? Uh, When we lived in Colorado, we would climb 14ers, and we'd sit at the top and take in the view, the vastness of it all. And I watched people climb 14ers by themselves, and they couldn't stand it. They had to grab somebody they didn't even know and say, did you see that? Of course he's looking at it. But it is so vast and big and you feel so small that you feel like you've got to tell somebody. Now, if we got that on earth and that's just an appetizer, imagine what it's going to be like in heaven. 
If this earth is all there is, then you've got nothing to look forward to. But if it's just an appetizer of what's ahead, what's the main meal going to look like? And God has thought it all up, and he tells us here that it's more than we can even imagine. Notice it says all that God has prepared for those who love him. Well, I want to conclude with a final uh, statement. Now, we said heaven is a place, and it has the possibility of great gain. And um, I've only touched on what heaven's like. Yeah, I think in the bottom of your notes, I recommend some reading. Andy Alcorn in his book, Heaven, is a great read. This is the, the larger version. He has a shorter version, and it'll blow your mind, the kind of things he says from the Scripture that will take place in heaven. And uh, I want to encourage you to, to pick that up. But I want to end with this one last statement. The Bible says not everyone will go to heaven. I mean, here's exactly what it says. Matthew 25 says, And when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, when He sits on His throne of His glory, all the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, I think if you were to look inside yourself, we really know that you know, whether you're a Christian or not, that, that's true. I mean, there, there's something within us that says there's got to be a reconciliation. There's going to be some kind of final accountability. In fact, Gallup said 85% of Americans think there's going to be a judgment of some kind, some sense that uh, the good is going to be ferreted out in a judgment and not everyone is going to be a part of the world God has created called heaven. And, and you and I, we got just naturally have people in mind that we, we know are not going to be there. I mean, no one thinks Hitler's going to be there. No one does. I mean, he killed six million Jews. But, but what about Pol Pot? He killed two million Cambodians. You think he'll be there? I mean, this world is filled with, with all sorts of evil people who have perpetrated great injustices on people. Those guys have got to be the goats, you'd think. They've got to be. But here's the question every man's got to face. Where is the cutoff line? I mean, if, if Hitler and Pol Pot have established the low point, and God, if he's grading on a, a, a curve, and they're at the low point, then uh, what's this side of the low point? I mean, if, if this is Pol Pot, if down here is Osama bin Laden, then the question is, how bad do you have to be to be a goat? Let's ask it in a positive way. How good do you have to be to be a sheep? That would be the positive spin on it, but I'm not sure that's the right question. I, I think the question we have to ask is, do we need help in this process? And that's the question we're going to answer next week. And I, I think you'll enjoy the answer, and you'll see how it fits into the, all the adventures we have. So we're, we're going to break into groups, and um, I'll give you a couple of questions to discuss. I know uh, that what I've given you is kind of challenging, so you ought to have a great discussion in your group about it. And we'll see you back next week, gentlemen.